Today we're going to continue on with the sermon series uh, called Free, because we understand, uh, according to the book of Romans, whom the Son sets free is free indeed, no longer to walk according to the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now again, this concept of freedom um, is, you know, in our eyes, it's kind of having the right to do whatever you want when you want. However, Jesus shows us that true freedom comes through the power of the cross, and that is a whole different way of going about freedom. Today, I want to talk to you not about a theological word. It's not a $10,000 theological word that I'm going to bring to our attention. This word, you'll probably never find it in a book on success. You'll never find it in a book that refers to freedom. However, the Old and the New Testament, as well as the ministry of Jesus, constantly point to this word. That if we're willing to crouch down so low, that becomes the moment where we experience the true freedom that comes from serving Jesus. That word, drum roll please, can I get a drum roll from you guys this morning? Is the lovely word humility. Ah. It's kind of like Bob Barker. You know, what's behind door number one and number two and number three? We all like door number one, the you know, vacation to Cancun. And then behind door number two, we like the brand new car. And then behind door number three, a washing machine. Great. And that is how the word humility feels to many of us. It feels like there are so many great prizes and ways of going about feeling free. But Jesus opens this door and it's the washing machine. It's humility. It's like all the moms here who got a household appliance on Mother's Day that they didn't ask for. Yeah? It's like, oh, are you, are you kidding me? But Jesus purposefully and conscientiously invites us into what it means to live humbly so that through that humility, we can experience the truest sense of freedom. See, when you and I, we think of living life to its fullest, humility is one of the last things that comes to our mind. We live in a world that oftentimes equates the climbing of the proverbial ladder of success. However, abundant life really has us kneeling and washing the feet of others. I don't know about you, but when I signed up for Jesus, I didn't know I was signing up for this. Come on. Like, you're going to live your best life, your abundant life, and all we see is climbing, soaring. But Jesus says, if you want to live this abundant life, you've got to start kneeling and washing. For someone like me, that doesn't always rhyme that well with me. If you know me really well, you know I am quick to the word. I have a word. You have a word. I got a word back. You rebuttal me, I rebuttal you. You rebuke me, I can rebuke you back ten times over. And so this idea of humility, even though I know it, I don't really like it sometimes. And to become a believer and a follower of Jesus, it requires this humility. And I remember being a young missionary and being so annoyed at certain things that would happen. And I remember our pastor, my wife and I, our pastor over there, Jan, he would look at me and he'd say, Eric, and I'd just stand there and I'd go, no, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Not I would do whatever he wanted me to do, but if there was an issue with someone else, I was like, oh, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not talking to them. I'm not calling them. I'm not doing this. And he said to me, come here, you. 
and he was the son of a cobbler. So his dad used to fix shoes, and as a sign of love, his dad would kind of take him and put him under his cobbler's apron and kind of bear hug him. And so when I was being stubborn, he'd take me, put me under his jacket, and then bear hug me until I kind of caved a little bit. And he'd say to me, I want to teach you the principle of judo. When people annoy you, when things happen, the art of humility is bowing so low that people trip over you. Ding, 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 ding. I like that one. I can do something with that. See, because the word of God shows us that God levels the proud, but he exalts the humble. Now, in Christianity, this idea of humility oftentimes can be replaced with what I call false humility. Oh, you sang so nicely. Oh, all the glory to God. Oh, you taught such a good Bible study. Oh, all the glory to God. And yes, all the glory to him because everything we do, we do it as unto him. But it is okay to take a little credit for the things that you do right. Come on. When people say to me, you preached a good sermon, I say, thank you very much. Yes? Because I make myself that willing vessel. Whatever you do for the Lord in your life, you are making yourself that willing vessel. So this false humility is not what I'm getting at. I am getting at the humility of Jesus. And in the book of Philippians, Paul, he expounds more on what does this humility look like? What does it mean? How do we get it? And how do we experience true freedom in the midst of oppression. Philippians chapter 3 verse 10 is the text that I would first like to relate to your hearts this morning. Paul in writing to the church at Philippi says to them, my goal is to know him, meaning Jesus, and the power of his resurrection. And as Pentecostals we can stop there and say, oh glory, hallelujah, we love resurrection power, don't we? We love when Jesus rises from the dead. We love being filled with the Spirit. We love signs and wonders and miracles. Oh, I got my glory dance on now. However, he says, to know him and the power of his resurrection, but do not forget the end and the fellowship of his suffering. Oh, no, 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 no. When I gave my life to Jesus, when I got filled with the Holy Spirit, I did not sign up for this one, God. I didn't sign up for his suffering. I signed up for the good part of the story. But see, God sometimes leads us down the road of suffering. He leads us down roads we never asked to go down. He leads us to places we never asked to go to. But there's a method as to why he does this. And Paul goes on. He says that I may be conformed to him in his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. See, Paul was willing to rise with Jesus in every circumstance, and he was willing to suffer with them. Why? Because deep down in Paul, there was this hope that though he die, when Jesus returned, he would raise him up. But why is he saying this? Well, as I said, the church in Philippi, they were going through rough times. They were suffering because they were believers. They were being persecuted. They were being ostracized and pushed aside. They were made to feel very unimportant. 
And so when we begin to feel pressed down, when we feel unseen, unheard, abandoned, unlooked at, when people are out to get us, we don't get quieter as human beings. We like to put on our power suits. Who are you to tell me? You don't know who you're talking to. You don't know who I am. And for the church at Philippi, they could honestly say, even as Christians to the Romans, but I'm a Roman citizen too, just like we as Americans can say, and I'm an American too. But Jesus lays down all of this. And he asks us to do the same. He asks us to lay down any privilege, any perk, any nationality, anything that we hold dear, he says, can you lay that down for me because your power is not found by putting your power suit on. Your power is found in weakness. And Paul, as he's relating this message to the church in Philippi, they're like kind of not getting it. And you have to understand, Paul, even though he is a Roman citizen, he is also what he refers to as a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning he is a fully Jewish man that has come to faith in Jesus. And so because of that, he draws us in a little bit into the Jewish tradition. And when he says something like the fellowship of his sufferings, this is a very Jewish concept. Where can we find it? Well, see, Paul invites us to the Lord's table, and in the same way, any good Jewish person and a, and a foreign guest would be gathered for centuries around the Passover table. And in the New Testament, you and I are also invited to the table of the Lord, where Jesus becomes for you and I the Passover lamb, where his body becomes the bread of life, and where the wine that we drink becomes his blood. And therefore, before we eat, it must be made clear. It must be made clear to us just like it was made clear for centuries at every Passover table. They would say the following before they ate. This is the bread of affliction of our ancestors that they ate in the land of Egypt. Let all who are hungry come and eat. And this party starts in a rather unusual way, don't you think? See, it starts by eating humble pie. You mean to tell me you're inviting me to a birthday party and I'm not getting a cake and streamers? You mean to tell me you don't have a goodie bag for me when I leave? No, this particular party invitation starts by welcoming in suffering. Because if you truly wanted to understand the Jewish people and the God that they serve, you had to understand the suffering that they went through. And I think that we can say the same as human beings. When we get to know people and they get to know us, we feel as if they don't truly know us unless they know what we've been through. Because anyone can accept the happy moments from our life, right? And you know people are like that. That's why we have the expression, fair-weathered friends. People that love to be around you as long as you're the life of the party. As long as you're happy, as long as you're listening to them, as long as you're there for them. But this party looks different. This party is the invitation to join in the sufferings of Christ, to realize in his full humanity that he gave all of himself and he was obedient to death even on a cross. 
And so just like every Jewish person sat at the Passover table and had to eat the bread of suffering, you and I are being asked to eat Christ fully. And that expression seems so strange. Even when Jesus mentioned it to his followers, many abandoned him and left him. He said, eat of my body and drink of my blood. And they were like, this guy's going way too far for me. They didn't understand the spiritual richness that Jesus was trying to offer them, meaning if you were to partake of the fullness of what he was doing, that his blood would forgive sin and heal diseases and deliver people, if his body that was broken would bring about unity in the coming of the Spirit, if you would just take these things onto yourself, you would live. You would be free. And we need this freedom. We need this freedom in our lives like never before. How do we go about getting it? Well, in Philippians, Paul shows us three distinct areas within our human lives where this humility becomes necessary. The first thing he says to the church is, can you guys just get on the same page? There's nothing worse than a team that's not united, right? Have you ever seen a bad team? Bad news bears? The reason for that is when people are not on the same page with one another, it leads to catastrophe. And so Paul encourages the church in Philippi, and every believer gets encouraged to get on the same page with one another. So in Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, he says the following, make my joy complete. He's saying this like a true dad of the church. He said, by thinking the same way. Having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, ding, 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 consider others as more important than yourself. Everyone should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interest of others. Please understand the context in which Paul is writing this letter. Again, as I said, the people of Philippi, especially the Christians, are suffering. And we understand that when we are suffering in our individual lives, who is the first and only person we think about? Me. Me, 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 me. We think of those that are closest to us, and all of a sudden, we can become almost animalistic with our survival skills as long as I get by, as long as I survive, as long as my needs are taken care of. And when people feel threatened, their opinion and the way that they look at things becomes more important. And I think maybe we can forget how many of us reacted to everything that has been going on for the past two and a half years. We can forget how we had an opinion about everything. We can forget that when we didn't agree with someone about something, even if they were our brother and sister in Christ, we were willing to go head to head with them, die on the altar of being right. And Paul is saying, if you're going to die any death, let it be for Jesus, but not for your own opinion. In our society, we place a high emphasis on each person having their own thoughts and opinions. It's great. However, it often leads to disagreements and confusion. 
So the scripture encourages us as Christians to be like-minded. And and like-mindedness, it's the ability to come to a consensus with others for the common good of the body of Christ. And not just considering your individual needs and preferences. Now as a pastor for many years at this point, can I be honest with you? The moments when people say I am spirit-led is when I do things that they like. When it benefits them, I am led by the Spirit. But when it's something that they don't like or for the benefit of someone else, oh no, that wasn't the Spirit of God. I've had people try to make it seem like I don't listen to the Holy Spirit because of a paint color. Like, are you kidding me? Is that really what it's about? And I don't mean this only for myself. I give you that example so that you understand in your own life that opinions and preferences are not the kingdom of God. See, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk. It's a matter of power and the demonstration of the Spirit. The kingdom of God is not a matter of jibber-jabber about opinions. It is about peace, righteousness, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And when you're in a genuine Christian community, that is what you should be experiencing. And if we're not there, if you're not there, if we as Bethel are not there, let us strive to be there. Why? Because as the pressures around us keep mounting, how do we want to react? We want our love to grow greater for one another and for him. Get on the same page. Why do we want that? Well, when you look at any sporting event, we oftentimes will place emphasis on the person who scored the goal. Right? Oh, yeah, that person who scored the goal in soccer, they're a top player. Well, what about the goalie who blocked the ball from going into the goal? What about the assist that was made by the other player? In American football, it's not only about the quarterback or the guy who's running to get the ball into the end zone. It is about the other players that are constantly blocking to keep their man open and free. See, we are one body and we are one team all together. And so we need to keep that mindset that you are important and you're important and we're all important in this together. It's not only about the man preaching on the stage. It's about each and every one of you being on the winning team. Every victory we experience is our victory together. And every sadness in our midst should be our sadness together. We should rejoice with those who rejoice and be sorrowful with those who are sorrowful. Get on the same team. The next point, and it's not popular opinion, that Paul is trying to get across is the following. Get over yourself. Come on. Get over yourself. See, we act like we're an insecure society, but Americans, when it comes down to it, we love ourselves. We act all like, oh, I don't like this, or I have bad image, or this or that. No, we really like ourselves. We spend a lot of time and a lot of money on ourselves compared to other cultures. Come on. And because we love ourselves so much, this invitation into humility seems so counterproductive to you and I. And so in Philippians 3, 7 through 9, Paul writes to them about getting over themselves because he had to get over himself too. 
He said, but everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung. I love this translation. You can fill that in in your own language. So that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God based on faith. See, Paul considered every accomplishment in his life nothing in comparison to Jesus. When Jesus becomes the focus of all your aspirations and all your drivenness, all of the sudden, every perspective changes. See, it's easy to feel abased. It's easy to feel taken advantage of when the efforts that you are producing in life are all out of your own strength, when you are really just subliminally behind the scenes trying to better yourself and make your image look good to other people. But when you are truly motivated out of Christ, guess what? It doesn't matter what people think about you. It doesn't matter what people say about you. They can say whatever they want, but if you know who you are in Jesus, you are a force to be reckoned with. Our accomplishment-driven society sometimes creates unfairness and separation in our relationships. We talk about the land of the free and the brave and equality, but there are a lot of unequal things that happen. In order to be a body, we have to realize that every single person is important. It is not about self-gain. It is about gaining Christ with one another. A position should never be your prize. A person should never be your prize. Like Paul, Jesus needs to be our end goal. Why? I have met a lot of unsatisfied and unfulfilled believers. Come on. I had a young man, he had a call of God on his life, and his, his goal, his aim, oh, I want to preach in a stadium, and I want to preach in front of thousands of people. Can I be honest with you? Never let that be your end goal, first and foremost. Because he got up on that stage one day and he preached to that crowd and he said to me as his mentor, I walked off that stage the emptiest person. I have never felt so empty in all of my life. Why? Because when that stage and the audience become your end goal, that is the end of you. But when Jesus is your end goal, no matter what the results are, no matter how people respond to it, because sometimes you might have a ministry like Ezekiel, if you want to talk about someone that had a rough ministry, read the book of Ezekiel. No one listened to him. No one. No one came to faith. No one converted. His prophecies are still being fulfilled to this day. He walked alone and isolated and abandoned. But his vision was Christ. His vision was Jesus. And I'll tell you something, people can sing your praises, they can clap you on the back and on your shoulder, they can give you a diploma, but guess what? It means nothing. Until you get to heaven and the Father, the Son, and the Spirit can say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, enter in to the joy of the Lord. 
One thing that I always thought was great in growing up was just hearing stories about our family. And my grandfather, he was an accomplished person. He was the son of immigrants and his older siblings. They really did their best to get him through school. So the older siblings, there were seven older siblings and three younger siblings. So the older siblings paid for the youngest three to get their education. And my grandfather became an educated man. He was a principal. He owned a business, so he worked double jobs pretty much almost until death. And so with his reputation, everyone was always expecting him to always want to be a highfalutin type of person, but he never forgot where he came from. He said to my mother and my aunt and others that knew him, he said, my favorite person at school is the janitor. That man works so hard. He knows everyone by name. He knows situations and things that I do not know about. But in our society, we place so much importance on the people that are here and the people that we think are here. We pay them no mind. Oh, we've experienced that. Can I tell you something? I'll be dead honest with you. And Bethel, thank God, is not a church like that. I used to travel as a preacher overseas. And so when you come in and they know you're coming, they see your name on a platform, and I mean Eric Capelli. In the Netherlands, most people are very light-skinned, almost milky color, and then I walk in. Yeah? And it might not look like much to you, but there, in the words of Marissa Tomei, I stick out like a sore thumb. Yeah? So there I am in this church, and so everyone, oh, can I get you a cup of coffee? And what can I do for you? And I'm so glad you're there. But they didn't know my wife, and they didn't know my children. People would bump into my wife, spill the coffee on her, not help her with the children. My wife would say all the time, I know how good the church is by how they treat me, not how they treat you. See, in human opinion, we're always looking to the superstar. But every person that walks through this door here at Bethel should be a superstar to us. No matter what background they have, no matter where they come from, they should be treated with dignity, respect, and love. Why? Because that's what Jesus modeled. We are no better than the worst sinner among us. We all need Jesus. The third lesson that we learned today is that in this walk of humility, we will get our bodies back. Paul writes about this too in Philippians because the church is suffering even physically, beaten, flogged, imprisoned. And he says to the people of Philippi that are Roman citizens that can sometimes appeal to Caesar like he does, he says in Philippians 3, 20 through 21, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. We live in a very body-driven society. The Roman society at that time was also the same. They call it the temple worship of self. You love your body, and even though you act like you don't, oh, believe me, our obsession of looking in the mirror, our obsession of what we buy and the colors that need to complement and the makeup that goes on and the amount of working out and what we need to eat and what we need to do, and it doesn't mean don't be healthy. But we're kind of caught in the wrong game, even in our Christian circles. Everyone wants to be young forever, and I don't blame them. 
And in first service, sometimes they're a little bit older. They kind of scratch their head at me because they really think, and I don't blame them. But yes, I am 41, but I'm not a young spring chicken anymore either. And how do I know that? My wife and I said it. Our oldest son, he towers above his mother at this point. And when I look at the 14-year-old, I look at myself and go, my skin, it really is aging. I, when I look in the mirror, I don't see my 14-year-old self anymore, nor do I want to. Because I enjoy a little bit of gray in the beard and in the sideburns. I like the experience of life and kind of just knowing who I am as a person. I don't have to impress anyone, and I really don't care. But see, in our culture with this striving, striving to keep our bodies a certain way and our faces and our hair, we don't have any external pressure on our body, but it's all internal. But the church in Philippi, they were being beaten, they were being hurt, their bodies were being inflicted. And no, we haven't come there yet as believers, but what happens in the day when that becomes the reality of our lives? What happens when people will mock us and beat us and slap us and hurt us for what we believe in? These are realities for Christians and other parts of the world. I know in the United States of America, they try to make it seem like Christianity is the dominant religion and we are the oppressor of civil society. I want you to understand something, that Christianity all over the world is the biggest humanitarian helper that there is. If you were to withdraw Christians from most of the world, these countries would fall apart. And guess what? Don't deceive yourself, but even here in the United States of America, Christians are the backbone of our societies. See, in our culture, we push and we prod our way forward in life because we think that this life is the place to accomplish all the things that God and others, and even we ourselves, may expect of ourselves. However, we are not living for this life only. We are living and dying and resurrecting for eternal life with the Father, the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And when we rejoin with him on that day, as Jesus prayed the high priestly prayer, he wants us to join in the joy, in the submission, in the peace, in the unity, and the holiness that he experienced before the world even began. Understand that this body, which sometimes limits us and limits you, your humble abode, that it will one day be transformed into a glorious temple. I can guarantee you that you will age nicely. You don't need expensive beauty creams. You don't need a liposuction. You don't need a hair transplant. You don't need a pedicure, a manicure, you don't need an eye lift, a toe lift, a lip bubble, whatever they do to people. I, I don't even know what they do to people anymore. You don't need to look like the Joker after 10 times of plastic surgery. When Christ returns, this body that ages and hurts, this body that may endure slaps and imprisonment, will be resurrected into glory. Jesus not only will save your soul, he is going to save your body too. In closing this morning, Jesus invites us. Just like he invited his disciples to a table. In John chapter 13, verse 14 through 17, 
you and I get to crawl into one of the most beautiful stories of Scripture. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he speaks to his disciples. And he says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you as an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master. Nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Oftentimes when we've heard this story, even in churches, and this always cracks me up just a little bit. I say all the time, like, when you read the Bible, like, read it. You know, like, don't just think things because people told you that. When you read this particular text, we always make it seem like Jesus is doing something very cultural. It was culture in that day to wash the feet of others, and servants would typically do that. And so we go, ooh, yeah, that's like such a great illustration. You know, culturally, they did this thing. What Jesus is doing here is not cultural. Jesus is doing something spiritual, and how do we know that? Because the Bible tells us in the context of the story, they were already eating dinner, meaning they had already come into the home. They had washed their bodies for a religious feast, and most likely upon coming in where they came to eat, their feet had already been taken care of. So during the meal, Jesus bows before them. And washes their feet. And in the same way that Christ allowed himself to be humble, he invites us to be humble. But the context of where Christ is showing this humility, it's not fun. It's not the meal that you want to be at. Why? Because everyone sitting at the table is about to betray him. And while he's sitting at that table, Mr. Smartmouth Peter, he says to him, hey, it, dude, if you're going to wash my feet, wash my body. I love that Jesus isn't a pushover. Jesus says to him, dude, your body should be washed already. It's a holiday. Like, knock it off here. I'm trying to show you a lesson. Let me wash your feet. But someone else was at that table. Judas. And he washed his feet. There will be Judases in your life. There will be betrayers. There will be people that will mock you, criticize you. There'll be people that try to humble you. That is their mission. How do I know that? Because I have experienced many people in my life, even senior ministers who thought that it was their God-given gift to kick me down constantly. Listen, the Lord humbles, not people. It is not your job to go around humbling people. Your job is to praise others, to lift them up, to encourage them, to be there for them. But just like Jesus, we are being called as a church to wash the feet of others. Wash their feet. Well, what does that look like? Because in our culture, we don't really like wash feet. And honestly, if any of you even tried to wash my feet today, I'd be embarrassed. I have to clip my toenails after church. But Jesus invites you. And see how Jesus does this is he doesn't wash our feet anymore because he's not here. He washes over us with his love. 
And whenever you've experienced his love that washes over you, guess what? In that moment, you didn't deserve that love, but by grace, he washed over you. And the world in which we live, the people around us, even the Judases and the obnoxious Peters, they need to be washed over with love. And the way of love is bowing yourself so low, people trip over you. And that's hard sometimes when people are rude or obnoxious, when people say things that are mean to you, when people persecute you because of what you believe in. Jesus says, wash their feet anyway. Philip Yancey, great writer, responds to this moment with Jesus, and he says, Jesus gave us a model for the work of the church at the Last Supper. While his disciples kept proposing more organization, hey, let's elect some officials over here and let's establish a hierarchy. Who gets to sit at his right hand? And they were trying to set all these standards of professionalism. Jesus quietly picks up a towel and a basin of water and begins to wash their feet. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, Jesus says, become the least. Become the least. Can we close our eyes this morning? If you're watching online, stay with us in this moment. Close your eyes wherever you are and just begin to ask the Lord. Lord, help me to walk in the way of humility. Help me to wash the feet of those that really don't deserve it by showering love upon them even when they're undeserving of it. Jesus, help me when my own ego, when my own feelings, when my own desires stand in the way of what you want to do with my brothers and sisters in Christ, but also with those beyond the walls of our Christian communities. Lord, let me be an instrument of your love. Let me walk like Jesus walked in humility. And Lord, that road is not an easy road. When you ask me to join in your resurrection, I'll sign up right away. But Lord, when you ask me to walk in the way of suffering, I don't know about that one. But Jesus, I want to walk with you. I want to know you. So Lord, lead me down that road. Lord, and when the times around me get tough and they get hard, help me to serve you. Lord, when they press me, when circumstances press me, when political situations press me and economic situations press me, when spiritual forces press me, Lord, let your love come out all the more. Jesus, I surrender to you this morning. I'd like to ask the altar team to make their way to the front this morning. This morning, we want to believe God for you, no matter what situation you are in. We believe in a God who helps us in our need. And while Paul is writing this letter, he says something that's really important because he knows that there'll be this resurrection on the last day. But he says, let the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead quicken your mortal body. Some of you need to be strengthened today by the power of the spirit. Some of you need strength in your emotions, you need strength in your mind, and others of you, you need it in your actual body. You're suffering, you're going through things, and he wants to strengthen you like never before. And all you have to do is lay aside your pride and not act like you don't need help and say, Jesus, help me today. 
wash over me by the power of your spirit and help me with the things that are going on in my life because I need you. In conclusion this morning, if you need prayer today, I ask you to just make your way to the front and let the members of the altar team pray for you. If you're watching online and you need prayer, I'm just going to close with a quick prayer for you. And then after that service is dismissed, you can make your way quietly out of the double doors and enjoy the Missions Cafe. We also have some leaflets from Dr. Lappert that wrote a beautiful piece about Ascension uh, Day, which is happening this Thursday. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus. We pray for those that are here and those that are watching online. Lord, if there is any need and any pressure that they are going through that needs your help right now in this moment, we pray that your spirit would minister to them. Lord, you know those that are feeling down and lowly. I pray that you would reach into their situation and lift them up today. Lord, for those that are struggling with pride and arrogance or even insecurity that masks itself and pride, Jesus, help us to lay it down before you today and help us to take on a servant's heart. Lord, as the pressures mount all around us, help us to be so full of you that love spills out all over us. Jesus, touch every viewer that's watching online. Touch everyone that's a part of this service. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.